If you're thinking about starting a podcast, let us tell you about Anchor. First off, it's free, and you can record and edit your show through your computer or phone, or import your show from whatever recording software you already use. Anchor will then distribute your show for you so it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And probably the best part, you can start making money with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to start a podcast from start to finish in one place, and it was a super easy switch for us. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's anchor.fm. Welcome back to LA Not So Confidential. I'm Dr. Shiloh. And how are you, Dr. Scott? I am great. Thank you for talking us in, introducing us this week. What's going on? Uh, Not a whole lot. We are starting a series of something right now, which is not really anything we've ever done before. I know. It's sort of a a carve out of the regular show, although we've touched on a couple of things before. But I feel like this episode may be the one that we encourage people to go back to, to explain some legal concepts um, yeah, later definitely. in the show. Yeah. So we are doing a series on LA noir crime that is kind of the theme of LA Not So Confidential. I mean, it's what we sort of think of when we base, we picked our music or when we picked our logo, just this idea of LA noir and how much we love that part about Los Angeles. So we thought, let's pick some crime. Let's do a couple of months worth of really just focusing on these topics. And this is going to be our first one, which is going to be really good and good timing. But I don't know, what what does L.A. noir, noir crime mean to you, Scott? Well, I, I'm, I guess we're, what, 63 episodes in already and we didn't really ever talk about what that means and I think some people kind of get it but maybe they don't so that was one of the things I wanted to start with today was talking about what that term actually means in terms of cinema and the type of literature that came from LA from film noir where noir came from itself it's kind of a convoluted story that is fascinating to me so i was just going to jump in do you want me to start yeah. okay so la not so confidential of course we did a spin on the movie from the 90s la confidential with kim bassinger russell crowe guy pierce and that was an attempt to recreate a noir type crime drama that became very popular in the 40s and 50s here in Los Angeles. And it was a specific sort of birth of a type of film genre that had not been seen in the U.S. in this particular way before. It was first coined in the term film noir in 1946 by a group of French critics. And what they were doing was they're describing this emerging, evolving movement of mainly black and white Hollywood films with really dark 
pessimistic themes and motifs such as uh, alienated antiheroes. So there was a lot of moral ambiguity in the characters, which was really a departure from stock stories that were told in film. So what we saw was this very interesting use of light and shadow and very specific types of characters and the way they interact with each other in the films. We saw you see a lot of night shoots. You don't see a lot of day scenes in film noir unless it's there for a specific reason as a, a contrast to the night scenes. What's really funny is that we rarely get any rain here in Los Angeles. We have like maybe a two to three month span where we really get showers and they're just just complete like the skies have opened up and we get just complete showers but that's done a lot as a motif in noir films is showing rain slick streets when we really don't have a lot of that right or there's like this ominous clap of thunder and then someone has to rush inside a building to get out of the rain yeah which just what month is this yeah it doesn't happen so does everything take place between january and early march it just seems like that's what it is So the influencers for noir actually were German expressionist artists. And that was because we were having a lot of immigration from Western Europe. So it combined with uh, some very popular crime drama novels, which were a little bit pulpy with characters like Sam Spade, Mike Hammer, Philip Marlowe as these really sort of hard-boiled, weary-of-life detectives who've seen everything. They've seen the the worst of the underbelly of Los Angeles. They're not trusting, and but they're always, because of their sort of cynicism of life, they're able to, to uh, solve these crimes that are usually not solvable. So there's a really, there's even a, a, an evening of these things on Turner Classic Movies. If you're, if you have this streaming service, it's a, it's our go-to when nothing else is on for us to watch. We're uh-huh. like, well, what's on TCM? And they have a noir alley, um, which is all noir films. And with an introduction by a guy, Eddie Mueller, who really does a fantastic job of framing that it was a specific style happening, as I described, but also the fashion, the influences, how it sort of enhanced or it outlined what was supposed to be traditional roles of masculinity and femininity in film is very interesting. But I want to I got a couple of quotes from him that I think are great. So he wrote a book called Low Company, High Style, The Allure of Film Noir. And this is a great quote. The men and women of this sinister cinematic world are driven by greed, lust, jealousy, and revenge, which leads inexorably to existential torment, soul-crushing despair, and a few last gasping breaths in a rain-soaked gutter. But damned if these lost souls don't look sensational riding the Hades Express. Oh my God, that's so perfect. I just watched, I watched The Big Sleep today. Yeah. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And there's this scene where she is wearing this jacket to dinner that is just, it's like gold, but it has black trim and this deep v-neck or it's not v-neck but like this deep cut in it with nothing underneath and i'm just like that is the most amazing coat i've ever seen i want one well everything was done well like it it the 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 suits that the men wore were very structured which is like we go through periods where men's suits get very unstructured and then structured and this was a time where you know you you went to a tailor when you bought your suit and they looked at your your posture and they adjusted the structure of the suit to your particular posture so you always looked good 
So I want to continue with the quote, too. He says, to me, a truly noir tale is one in which the protagonist, acting out of desperate desire, does something that he or she knows is wrong, but they do it anyway, and they reap the dire consequences. The fatal mistake is typically criminal in nature, so it follows that most film noir fits snugly into the crime genre. The essence of great noir is that it makes you empathize and often sympathize with these doomed denizens. And when most people think of film noir, however, it's the inimitable style that they're considering, the sensuous and secretive shadows, the gleam of streetlights on a 48 Packard, the whispering rustle of Rita Hayworth's Jean-Louis gowns. This iconography now flows in the cultural bloodstream, absorbed and endlessly imitated in movies, television, art, fashion, advertising, everything. Even podcasts. Even podcasts. And I think that's just beautifully written because we still do. We circle back around to these elements in in our entertainment. And they're always welcomed back when they cycle back around if it's done well. So it started like the the typical time span for this work is the early 40s to the end of the 50s. And like I said, there were several things that contributed to it. The immigration of German filmmakers to America, such as Wilder, Fitzlang, Otto Priminger, Robert Siedemach, Curtis Bernhardt, and others. And the public just ate up that their favorite actors were playing these immoral characters. Mm -hmm. Not immoral, but amoral characters, like with moral ambiguity. These characters are fed up and frustrated with happy ending movies that didn't reflect... Well, sorry, it wasn't characters. The viewers. The viewers were frustrated and had um, with happy ending movies that didn't reflect their experience in the post-depression world. And so many critics believe that literally the first noir film was actually 1948's They Live by Night. And it was directed mm-hmm. by Nicholas Ray in his directorial debut. And it starred a young man, Farley Granger, who had already done a couple of big Alfred Hitchcock movies. And it's based on the Depression-era novel Thieves Like Us. So even though this movie received favorable reviews from critics, it completely flopped at the audience because no one got it. Nobody understood what it was. It was like splashed onto film. It was like these shadows and lights and people's faces being obscured by hats Uh and this very sparse dialogue at the very for the first 20 minutes of the film but what happened was after the movie closed there's no place for it to go it's not on television it's not like it's just going to sit in theaters and play over and over what happened was the film of this movie circled all around hollywood into the the screening rooms and the dining rooms and the living rooms of all of these directors. And the directors were like, this is amazing. Oh, I want to do my film and I'm going to use this style. So basically it didn't get released until years later. I mean, now we know that it, it really kind of set the tone for all of these movies that were to come, but it really did not get any, any notice. I was really lucky when they re-released it, remastered about, 20 years ago, we saw it at the Egyptian Theater in Los Angeles, which had been um, remodeled and reconfigured for uh, classic films. And we got to see some of the stars talking about it and how Farley Granger was an elderly at the time. He's since passed away. But really funny, great raconteur talking about, like, we just thought we were making something really special and nobody got it. And then to go into a theater and see these Bogart films completely be hugely successful and go, well, crap, they're stealing everything that we did. Yeah, Yeah. they were just the first ones. People didn't understand. 
Yeah. You know what I just, we should do a, a watch party with some of these films during this series because I just realized on Amazon Prime, you can do a watch party where everybody, you know, rents it at the same time and then you can like chat as everyone's watching it. That would be, that really would be cool. There's a couple of really good ones that would be great to do. Like, especially I was going to talk about this because Farley Granger has also starred in two fantastic Hitchcock movies, which very much have to do with, with LA not so confidential. Uh, one is rope where oh, two, so two psychopaths find each other and decide that they're going to develop the perfect crime. And then the other one is strangers on a train. Mm-hmm. Because one of the what's the first rule of when you're investigating a murder? Who's gonna what circle of suspects is it gonna be? People that the victim knew. Yeah. So that's it evolves from there. But anyway, so um That would be fun. Yeah, it'd be really cool. So the panel, no, let's see, moving on, which is a, quite a discovery to me in looking at our notes for today is talking about the movie LA Confidential. I didn't know you didn't like it. So I rewatched it over the weekend and I hate it. I think it's, it, and this is no disrespect to the book or James Elroy or anything like that. And I Do you just want, think it, does it feel like it doesn't hold up? It feels like it doesn't hold up. I don't remember being impressed with it at the time, but every time I've watched it, I remember wanting it to be really good because I'm so interested in kind of the era and the feel but to me, it feels like it's that maybe if they shot it differently, it would have a different feel for me. But for me, it just feels like, yeah, they made this in 1997. <laughs> and I think the actors, their characters are really shallow, to be honest. I mean, it's it's very stereotypical cop. Um, you know, you have Russell Crowe, who's just like the muscle and grew up in a family where there was intimate partner violence. And so that's going to be the thing that sets him off on every call. It's just, it's it's kind of laughable now. Okay. I, you know, I, I don't think I've seen it in years, so I, I'll have to go back and, and look at it. But it did do very well at the box office. It so did. L.A. Confidential to 1997 American neo-noir crime film directed, produced, co-written by Curtis Hansen. It was based on the James Elroy series of books. It's the third book in the series that was also called L.A. Confidential. Uh, the, the series was called L.A. Quartet. And at the time, it starred its main actors that were very relatively unknown. Russell Crowe, who's from New Zealand, and uh, Guy Pearce, who's from Australia. But it had some larger names as well. Kevin Spacey, who we're doubt we're ever oh, going to hear much from him again. There, but I hang tell on. You, there, there's a scene where he tells this younger, good-looking actor. The guy plays an actor in the film and is going to yeah. go seduce someone. And he tells him, it'll be our little secret. And I kind of threw up in my mouth a little bit. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. No. Putting that into context now I know. is really gross. <laughs> but, I mean, amazing, yeah. brilliant actor, but yeah. quite a disturbed yeah. individual, clearly. So, let's see. What does it focus on? So, it's about the L.A. Police Department. And it's the intersection of police corruption and Hollywood celebrity. And L.A. Confidential refers to an actual magazine, uh, like a tabloid rag at the time in the 40s, called L.A. Confidential. So since the name of the movie is L.A. Confidential, they changed the the name of the rag to Hush Hush in Mm -hmm. the movie, which is very interesting because there's this juxtaposition between all the graft and corruption in the entertainment segment 
and the corruption in the police force and how it's all knitted together by the people who run these scandal magazines. I mean, yeah. it's very interesting on that level. Yeah, so, the, investiga- the, or the investigative reporter, the hush-hush one, is Danny DeVito in the film. Right. He's, he's, I thought he was great in that, but yeah, now I've got to go back and I've got to go back and watch it. Um, so a lot of people will say that the real star of the movie is actually LA itself because they were able to preserve, not preserve, but they were able to actually film on location at many places in LA that still have these beautiful, uh, homes and mm-hmm. architecture as well as some like really awful homes. I mean, there's one scene with a, with a woman that they just had never acted before. And she plays like a, a really disturbed woman. And it's like, it's uncomfortably funny yeah. because it's supposed to be, because this person is supposed to be really, you know, sort yeah. of off. There's um, a party scene that's shot at the Soden home. Um, yes. Which is kind of cool to see that it's been in so many films. So let's see, it made 126 million. Uh, against a $35, $35 million budget and got a lot of acclaim. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really, it actually got one of the highest scores ever on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, which is wow. very hard to do. Yeah. Dang. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, back in 1997, maybe it was knocking people's socks off, but try going back and watching again, folks, and see if it holds up for you. Yeah. I, one I, of the things that I like about the genre, the, not uh-huh. necessarily LA Confidential, but the genre itself, like, really does show a grittiness. And it's, how to describe this? Because I've lived in smaller towns and I've lived in huge metropolitan areas. And there's something about living in a city like Chicago or LA or New York. There's a lot of grit. You know, LA has its own grit from being basically a desert area where great you have tons of windows in your apartment and it's temperate most of the year you open those windows and there's dust everywhere mm-hmm. you know th- so there's this beauty that exists coexists right aside uh, right aside this sort of gritty underbelly of dust and grime that doesn't really ever get washed away and i think that a lot of the movies from that time period especially being in black and white and the camera shots that are used really capture that well i I love this genre because it it kind of encompasses everything that I'm into or that, you know, is really kind of the heart of our podcast. It's old Hollywood, it's crime, law enforcement, but also, like you were saying earlier, there's kind of these flavors of these psychological concepts that are done really well and subtly that you don't see in a lot of movies. But I think it was when you were talking about one of the uh, quotes from the book about the the acting out of desperate desire. I mean, it really feels like a lot of these characters are just purely working off of their id, you know, they're, yeah. they, they want the money. They're going to kill someone over it. They're working off of, you know, lust and who cares who gets in their way. And it's kind of interesting to see that and not have it just be hunky dory, happy endings all the time. Cause most of these aren't. And that's when you're watching these films within the first 30 minutes, you're like, Oh, this can't end well. And it never does. It never does. You always like, especially in Humphrey Bogart was such a, a gifted actor for what he did in Maltese Falcon. There's like, no, it's just a group of sociopaths. Like they're mm-hmm. all criminals. You don't know what anybody's motive is. And it sort of unfolds as you watch it. But he also did, they drive by night, 
which was another noir. And that is a great movie because he falls for a sweet young woman at the beginning. And you know that it's just like, yep, this, you're an Red idiot. Flag. Turn back. Red, don't turn do back. it. Like, she's, <laughs> she, don't do this. Like, why are you setting yourself up for this? And I don't want to give any of it away because I really like those. And I hope everybody will, will give them a try. Yeah, I hope so. So, so the Cecil Hotel yeah. plays a big part in L.A. history, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes. And, you know, of course, we could spend a whole series just talking about the Cecil Hotel in and of itself. But we really wanted to focus on crimes, obviously, that we could expand on as far as concepts in, in the psych world, the forensic psych world. And so I thought we would start here. Again, coincidentally, it coincides very well with the new Netflix documentary that'll be out today if you're listening on release day. Um, and I'm sure they'll do a great job at telling you everything you need to know about the Cecil Hotel. But we're going to focus on the story of Dorothy Jean Purcell to kick us off in this series and in this episode. And the Cecil Hotel... If you guys follow us on social media, particularly Instagram, you've probably seen us put pictures up. We literally work walking distance from it. And I drive, it is two blocks away from where I park or charge my electric work car. So I drive by it all the time. It's at 640 South Main in downtown LA. As it stands right now, it is closed down. And it was closed before the pandemic, and someone had recently purchased it anew and were renovating it for both living space, apartment living space, and hotel space. So I went over there and was in front of it a few weeks back and didn't seem to be any activity inside, but there is a note on the front that says you know, to call so-and-so for deliveries. So I think there is someone there from time to time. And if they're still getting deliveries, then maybe stuff is happening on the inside. This would be a great time, I guess, to take advantage of that. And it has been open at various times. Like it was purchased. I mean, it cl- before it closed, it had been turned into, uh, was it a hostel or was it a, a, like a moderately priced hotel? Yeah, I would say moderately priced. Um, It does have a hostile feel, I believe, because some of the floors are still like they were in the 30s where it has a, um, and this will come into our story, but where it has a communal bathroom just for like one floor. So the, the last time it was open was around the time of Elisa Lamb's circumstances and what it was the stay on Maine was the name okay. of the, the place. But yes, um, very moderately priced because it is not a great, it's like right on the cusp of Skid Row and then kind of where everything starts to turn nice <laughs> with some yeah. restaurants and streets that are okay to walk down and things like that. So it's like right there um, and it's, you know, any give and take day, there's just such a mix of people walking around and down in that yeah. area because of just all the living space that's down there now. So Dorothy Jean Purcell, she was 19 years old 
And she was described as a farm girl from Iowa, and she had been a former war worker. So she had been staying in the Cecil Hotel. This was 1944 with her boyfriend for about three weeks, and they were sharing a room at the Cecil. They had registered as man and wife, and he was a shoe salesman. His name was Bed Levine, Ben Levine, excuse me, and she he was 38 years old. And they're staying at the Cecil, and she is sleeping And in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m., she starts to have severe stomach pains. So not wanting to wake him or cause him any worry, she then goes down to the communal bathroom on their floor. And she's actually in labor. She claims later at trial that she had no idea she was pregnant. She gives birth to a baby boy. Um, I think it's a side note that also women who don't know that they're pregnant and whether or not this is part of her story or not. I'm not sure, but it actually is a phenomenon. I think we just need to put that out there too. Well, it is. There's a whole reality show with yes. <laughs> eight seasons. No, four seasons, 58 episodes. I didn't know I was pregnant. Yeah. So clearly this is more common than most, but you know, like you were saying in this particular incident, you know, she had to, she had to uh, justify it to a certain extent because of sure. getting in trouble for it. Whereas a lot of the examples that come on this show are on, on the, I didn't know I was pregnant reality show are just stupefying because every one of them or the vast majority are people that in the long run, you find out they're really not educated about sexuality at all, which is a, a, a just a terrible remark on our education system here. It is. I I think this could have been a few things, you know, just totally guessing with Dorothy. It could have been lack of sex education. It could have been denial. She's very young. She's very young. She's 19. She's with this 38 year old man came out to California to work um, for the war. And maybe it was a healthy dose of denial. You know, I I don't know. I don't know if she has any women around her out here that she can talk to or anything like that. So it's it's very interesting. It'll play into when we get into our topic of infanticide in a little bit. But later at trial, she says that she thought the baby was dead because he actually hit his head during birth. So whether she was in a bathtub or on the floor, I don't know. But... What she decides to do that night is throw him out of the 12th or 15th. There are conflicting reports in newspapers from back then. Story window at the Cecil Hotel. Mm. And he lands on the roof, actually, of an adjacent building. She then goes back to her room, doesn't say a word to her boyfriend, gets back in bed, and, you know, is in for the night. Well, she was quickly arrested the next morning, but she she stated that the father had to be a man from back in Iowa. Um, now, whether that's because she hadn't had sexual relations with Ben or because of the timing of if she was pregnant, maybe she hadn't been with Ben for 
10 months or during that period. So it, it was just something that she mentioned that it, it, Ben had nothing to do with it and it was not his child. So she gets arrested for murder and then she's held in a prison ward at General Hospital in Los Angeles, which is one of my favorite old kind of gothic buildings. <laughs> They're fantastic. not gothic. Um, Art Deco buildings. Uh, it's part of the USC Medical Institution down here. And it is the hospital in the opening scenes of the soap opera General Hospital. Right. <laughs> Same hospital. <laughs> Have you ever been there? Oh, yeah. I've actually, uh, yeah. I've, hospitalized people there? Or, I've hospitalized or people there. I actually, when I first moved here, I, I a friend of mine passed away in that hospital. Um, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, it's, um, I have to say, like, it's an amazing building. It's very imposing. It looks like all the pictures. And, of course, there are more modern buildings that have been built around it. But I got to tell you, you walk on, you walk into the front area of the oldest building and you can't help but think it's haunted. Oh, my God. I mean, God. it just feels I like, know. you know, it's been there for close to 100 years now. And there's just, you think about all the grief and the stress that's been in that mortar and brick. Yep. Uh, you can't help but think it's haunted. Yeah, I had to go there a few times when I was a police officer, because if, if people that we arrested had medical conditions, they would go to county. And then at some point, if they had some sort of medical condition, at some point they might be then shipped over to the hospital. So I've had to go and pick up paperwork. And I remember going in one time on duty and stepping into the elevator and there was just, you know, blood splatter on the ground. <laughs> Nobody right. had cleaned it up. And I had to go down to the morgue level to go pick up the paperwork. And it was the creepiest thing. You know, yeah. I'm talking flickering lights. Like, yeah. how freaking fast can I get in and out of here and get back on the road? There's something well, that's profoundly disturbing about fluorescent yeah. lights to begin with. Well, yeah, I know. Yeah. But it, it turned out that she had a very severe infection from the delivery after the birth. So she was being held there. It's so interesting because in every old newspaper article that I found, every single article has a photograph of her laying in her bed there. So you know they were letting the media in just to photograph this poor woman as she's laying in her prison ward bed, essentially. It, it really gave some context to kind of the time period. Uh, and each photograph was different, you know, different um, angle or, you know, her looking different ways. So they were just Take, it's not like they were using the one photograph over and over. Super interesting. Yeah, that's something um, that would never be done today. I mean, we see photos no. of people in their, their jail environment or in the court environment. But like the idea that you would photograph somebody, even, even if it was a criminal event, you know, after having birthed a child and then being in their hospital, that, that just wouldn't happen. No, today. no. So county autopsy surgeon Frank Webb testified that the baby was in fact born alive as his lungs had been filled with air. And he says, quote, he gave every indication. I'm sorry, the quote in the newspaper is that he gave every indication that the five pound baby boy was alive and lacked only the usual sharp slap to make him show vocal signs of life. Wow. Also interesting uh, verbiage from the time. So three psychiatrists evaluated Miss Purcell, and yes, at the time they were known as alienists, which was fun to read in some newspapers. And they all agreed that she was, quote, mentally confused at the time of the incident. In 1945, she was found not guilty by reason of insanity. And an Iowa newspaper said, quote, 
After convicting her, the court declared her innocent by reason of insanity, asserting she was insane at the time of the crime, but sane now. So it, the LA Times uh, was my main source here from September 8th, 1944. And I thought it was fascinating as I zoomed out from just the clipping of her article. Every other article on the page except for one was nothing but stories about bad mothers. It was child neglect trial opens, mother ordered to aid adoption of her children, woman suspected jailed in child stealing case. Other stories about Dorothy were the headlines were unwed mother charged with murder of baby. You know, everything was this focus on unwed and it was that that was my first introduction to this. And then we when I went on to do the research about infanticide, I was like, well, this all makes sense now. Yeah. It was very interesting. And then contrasting with like the other side of the newspaper was just a full page ad for bullocks and what perfume you should be wearing and that you can actually wear separates instead of just a dress. <laughs> but, it, it goes along. I mean, we were just chatting about this. It came up during our last um, Zoom, no, no, what do we do? Our, our Get Vocal, our last Get Vocal, where we were talking about the excellent, excellent book, Hidden Valley Road, by our mm-hmm. friend Robert Kolker, that talks about the science and evolution of understanding of psychosis, and particularly in schizophrenia, and how at the beginning of it, researchers had to fight for years to move away from demonizing the mothers because it's always, if something goes wrong, it's mom's fault. So once again, I I thought particularly what you said was so on point, Shiloh, when you're talking, when they use the term unwed, because that's a way to really stick it to her even further and also attempt to shame any other woman who, who would dare engage in premarital sex. Oh, exactly. Sort of, you know, it's a, this aggression of sending a message of, well, you got what you, you got what you deserved. You're a right. sinful, wanton, sluttery, slattering woman, and you've made the rat bad decision. And this is what happens when you, when you're not moral and, um, and, right. clean, and then you, and then you go above and beyond and throw your baby out a window. Right. Yeah. 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 So we're going to touch at the end of today's episode. We do want to touch on not guilty by reason of insanity, but we're going to move into just looking at this crime of infanticide. Well, we've touched on familicide before in talking about uh, men and women who have taken horrific action against their families for various reasons. Mm -hmm. But infanticide, it's the intentional and implied planning of killing of infants. And at this current time in history where we are right now, there's no country in the world that is known to legally sanction this practice at all. But infanticide was really, unfortunately, a common practice throughout human history to dispose. And I use that. I hate using that word. So please, please know that I'm air quoting dispose of unwanted children. And the primary focus of this practice would be to control population growth that would preserve family and tribal resources like food. So it's believed um, but there is, and, and there actually is archaeological support that it was primarily focused on disabled 
deformed or otherwise weak infants generally. And a common method was leaving children to die by exposure, although in some societies the children were manually killed, usually by drowning or suffocating. Mm -hmm. So there were other reasons and motivations throughout known world culture. There's a different, and there falls into categories that you'll be talking about in more depth. But like there's also child sacrifice that was practiced in ancient times by many cultures. So the Carthaginians, the Phoenicians, Canaanites, Moabites, and Servavites, as well as even Aztecs and Mesoamerican tribe populations often offered their firstborn as sacrifice to the gods at different times. So, and this wasn't like, and I know this is going to sound harsh, so please, I don't mean it. It's not about sacrificing the runt of the litter or the weakest or the the deformed or the disabled child. In this case, it was offering up the most beautiful child. And in fact, they would plan, this is our firstborn and this is the most attractive child in our family. We're going to groom them and get them ready. They're going to be getting the best food. They're going to be treated like Mm -hmm. royalty for another five or six years. And then we're going to sacrifice them to the gods, which is just hard for us. I think for us to wrap our minds around in today's world where we understand the value of nurturing our children so that they can grow up to be better adults than we were, right? That just wasn't really a a focus at this time in history. Well, everything was about appeasing gods and... And surviving. And surviving and and thinking that your survival had to do with that appeasement. Yes, exactly. So it even goes back to Neo and Paleolithic evidence of female infanticide. And once again, that's something we'll, we'll talk about more also is like clearly the primary victims in this crime were females, were female children. And we estimate that it's up to 50% of female infants that were being killed or cannibalized even, depending on if it was periods of famine. Researchers posit that this really abruptly took a huge change when the cultures and tribal cultures around the world moved from being primarily hunt and gather into agrarian society. So once they learned to cultivate food and could stave off famine more easily, then there was a precipitous drop in these types of crimes that we know of so far. So, you know, going back to the idea of child sacrifice, historically Greeks considered the practice of this barbaric, but at the same time, the exposure, quote unquote, of newborns was widely practiced at that time and not considered infanticide or murder. It wasn't at all. There was a practice to leave children in clay pots by the road or even placing them on dung heaps to either die of exposure or be rescued by a passerby or a god. And that's mm-hmm. very much worked into myth, including even the Christian belief of Moses in the basket, right, you know, right. going that that someone is going to save them or, or God is going to a God or a divinity is going to step in and save them somehow. So Aristotle, which is really funny because in the good place, you know, Chidi is always talking about like, <laughs> well, who, who got out of the bad place? And he's like Aristotle. And they're like, mm, no, mm. Aristotle was for slaves. Well, here's something else that Aristotle was for that definitely would have not would have kept him out of the good place. He advocated for infanticide in cases of congenital deformity. And the quote is, as to the exposure of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. Wow. So that is harsh. Aristotle. Yeah. I mean, historically, sickly or deformed babies, they've always been vulnerable to this for the same reason. And there's literary record of folk beliefs that in many cultures, the babies weren't even considered real humans. Mm-hmm. So in medieval Europe, they would be called um, fairy changelings. In Africa, they'd be called witch babies or spirit children. 
And in that mindset, since it's not a human anyway, then they could be killed or abandoned without any guilt. Well, it's, this is not my baby because my baby was like really perfect and beautiful. I don't know who this deformed baby belongs to. So we're just going to leave it out at the crossroads at night and let the fairies get it. That's some real cognitive distortion going on there. Right. Whatever makes you sleep at night. Exactly. In ancient Greece, the father was allowed to make the final decision, but in the culture of Sparta, which was primarily focused around um, military training, the decision was made by a group of elders. And again, in these particular cases, exposure was the primary method of disposal. Oh, God, I hate that word disposal. But as an act itself, that was not considered to be murdered. As the thinking was, like I said before, the child could be rescued by someone walking by. So it's not really murder because we're just leaving it out there to see what happens. We're going to let fate. Right. Take the right. reins. Yes. So following, you know, in the Spartan society, after a woman had a baby, she would show it to her husband. If the husband accepted it, it would live. But if he refused it, it would die. And babies would often be rejected if they were unhealthy or illegitimate, um, deformed, or even to be the wrong sex. Like, um, okay, well, another another boy will be a burden on the family mm-hmm. or another girl will be a burden on the family, whatever, you know, objective or subjective view they had. And these babies wouldn't be directly killed either. But once again, the practice of putting them in a clay jar or pot and oh. then put on a roadway. So now let's go forward a couple of thousand years. Yeah, let's do that. That's brutal. It's not much better. It's not getting better? (laughs) It's not. Jesus. There's movement, but like it's... It only gets worse because it's the Victorian era. (laughs) It's the Victorian era where everything got fucked up. But it's also like too far in the other direction now. And and not... Well, it's it's another version of it, but it really goes so far in now where women really have no choice at all, but they end up being you know, placed in these really desperate situations. So in Victorian Britain, which was, you know, by the mid 19th century, as various areas of law and criminality and adjudication started to evolve, um, particularly the context of what you were talking about, criminal lunacy and insanity defenses um, were starting to be thought of. Now, that was based on the Monoton Rule. We talked about that in other episodes. The Monoton Rule came from even uh, uh, 150 years before, mm-hmm. but it's sort of been the standard of trying to understand if somebody was really responsible for it, if they understood what they were doing. So the role of women in Victorian society was not much. I mean, it's defined by motherhood. So the thought that anybody thought that a woman who could kill her child was by definition insane and then couldn't be held responsible for her actions. However, by the middle of the century, infanticide was so common for a lot of social reasons, such as illegitimacy and the introduction, which was kind of crazy. This was the introduction of child life insurance. So that became a way, which actually was rampant for about 100 years in across Western Europe and the U.S., you know, you could write, you could get a life insurance on a life insurance policy on almost anybody that you came in contact with. Friends, oh. siblings, parents, children. Yeah. That is so crazy. Even today, you don't need life insurance on your child. Your child is probably not contributing financially to your household. <laughs> it's for you to take care of your kid. Yeah. That's, so the, yeah. That there's policies for that. And that's interesting. Yeah. 
That's weird. So there was a term that came up around this time called baby farming. And baby farming was a historical practice in accepting custody of an infant or a child um, in exchange for like like a lump sum payment or a a regular recurring payment. Um, It was also practiced in Australia and the U.S., but not as much as uh, in Britain. And if the infant was young, and still nursing or breastfeeding by a non-biological mother, they could go into a home, drop off the child, say, here's a token, here's a necklace, here's an ID that I'll come back and I'll match it, I'll pick up my child when I can. Uh, But the problem was is that even to this day, we know that thousands of children were open to this opportunity. In fact, there were just drop-off centers where you could put your child into like a wooden corral and anonymously drop your baby off and just disappear. Wow. To the point where it swelled at one time to 25,000 uh, drop-offs within a year. and the, So like the, Annie, just drop off the kid, give him half a locket and say, I'll be back. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also, it's difficult to track how many children because, you sure. know, there weren't really good records at the time. But there's a great deal of information that indicates a lot of the kids farmed or left at orphanages died in a really short time. I mean, I wasn't able to find the records for the reason of death. Mm -hmm. So we have the possibility of failure to thrive in an overcrowded Mm -hmm. system, um, high population in wards that could easily spread disease, or is some of the locations just, you know, we're in it for the money and there are certainly enough of those for three or four episodes of women who just ran money-making baby farms where if they knew that the mother really was not going to be able to come back and pay on a regular basis or they didn't give enough money, then they would just let the child starve to death or or worse, probably. Um, we have some really heinous examples. There was Marianne Cotton, who murdered the majority of her 15 children, as well as three husbands. There was Margaret Waters. She was the Brixton baby farmer, and she was a professional that ran a huge like orphanage, and she was found guilty of infanticide in 1870. Yeah. There was Amelia Dyer, um, who had the horrible nickname, the Angel Maker, reputed to have murdered over 400 infants. Um, Yeah, it's just it goes on and on. And there's even if you follow any of these and look for Margaret Walters and Amelia Dyer, their pictures are just disturbing as hell. I mean, they look like characters out of a horror movie. They really look like something from American Horror Story. Everyone so, looked yeah. creepy in their photographs back then. <laughs> yeah, um, I we're get, we. I highly, once again, I know I I sound like I'm giving our listeners homework, but please look over our resources on the page. There are some really great articles that are very well researched about this phenomenon and how it has emerged, basically as almost always a sim- as a symptom of oppression of women around the world at various times. We're going to talk about this, the stats on this, but it's it's shown that mothers more often than not, they're far more likely than fathers to be the perpetrators of neonaticide. Mothers are slightly more likely to commit infanticide in general, but yeah, that's just sort of slicing out the data a little bit. And neo, one- neonanticide, the way they sort of parse these out is that is the killing of the child right after birth. Whereas infanticide, most places say that that's within the first year of the child's life. And I think that's what it's here in the United States. And that's really interesting because the chance for infanticide drops off sharply after a year. Right, right. Yeah. So I know who knows what that's about, if there was more connection, because in a lot of these cultures, 
they really didn't even consider the child to to be alive. I mean, there's one, especially there's a quote from a, I'm going to read a little bit later that is really chilling, beautiful and chilling from a 16th century Chinese woman. But in one study of mothers in rural India in a, an area called Tamil Nadu, it was found that infant mortality was four times higher for female infants, but only when their mothers already had at least one daughter. So um, in historical accounts, the mothers that had committed infanticide for what they would describe as maybe like practical reasons, this quote from this great article, parents ease the killing of a newborn by persuading themselves that it is not yet a child. So they're not always necessarily callous crimes. In a great book called Between Birth and Death by Michelle T. King, she was able to dig out a historical account of a 16th century Chinese woman talking to her adult son about the shame that she felt killing a baby when she was still a young woman. And I want to read it because I think it's just sort of incredibly sad. You know, here's this message from 400 years ago, and this was this is how long this kind of stuff's been going on and being dealt with by women around the world. Mm-hmm. Most of my life, I have never had any secrets to weigh down my heart. The only thing is when I was 24, I gave birth to a girl and drowned her. Even now, I regret it. At the time, we were so poor that we had not a thing in our house. As for this mere fleck of foam, what good would it be the point of raising her? It would only be in vain. No good for me, no good for her. So I made up my mind to drown her. After losing so much blood during birth, I couldn't get up. So I ordered the servant girl from your grandparents' house, Tzu, to drown it. She put it in shallow water, but it didn't die the whole night long. I was so furious. I forced myself to get up and shut the door in order to drown her. I turned my head, closed my eyes, and then did it. I couldn't look. Alas, how could I have done such a cruel thing? Mm. And it I mean, that... the perspective that to keep this child would only be in vain when we essentially now in contemporary times see it as the opposite, right? Like you should keep a baby no matter what, you know, and it's just so interesting that perspective that, you know, even others would have the perspective of how dare you keep this child because, you know, it's just a representation extension of you that, you know, you're going to let it suffer for your vanity. Yeah. I mean, that's a really great point that you're making is that the context changes But what doesn't change is, once again, the motivation is the oppression of women Mm -hmm. and not having body autonomy for whatever reason. I mean, here in this case, the reasons are based on I've already got a daughter. There's a reason I can't I can't have this child. But then to go, you know, to that extreme, it's just amazing. What's interesting, Sandra Newman, who writes this article, which I highly recommend, um, she points out that through the Christian world, that the cutoff point for a lot of parents was baptism. So even as late as the 17th century, baptism records show a really significant preponderance, which is pretty suspicious of Mm -hmm. male children surviving with many of the girls having clearly been disposed of by their parents before they were brought to the attention of the community. It's worth emphasizing that newborns who are the focus of virtually all culturally sanctioned infanticide. There's no custom in which poor parents killed an older female to make room for a newborn boy or killed an older disabled child to make room for apparently healthy newborn. So like you were saying, it looks like there's this window of when it might feel acceptable, which I find really interesting because 
it's almost like temporary insanity when we're going back Uh to the not guilty by insanity. You know, well, this person is not insane now, but at the time that they committed the crime, they were not in their right mind. Right, right. So it even went so far in 1624. So, you know, clearly before the Victorian era, you know, as Christianity was sort of developing into its own different factions around Western Europe, there was a really draconian law that tried to stop mothers passing off any killed newborns as stillbirths by punishing any woman who gave birth without a witness but did not produce a living child. So if you gave birth and your child was stillborn and it wasn't witnessed at still as being stillborn, then you would be, you know, then your word the, means nothing. Yeah. Then you're, you know, you're, you hang. Um, the law remained on the books for 180 years. Um, and now mm-hmm. they say that relatively few women were prosecuted by it and um, only a handful were convicted, but that's, that's pretty severe. It really is. Thank you for such a great historical context. I mean, <laughs> this could have taken many more hours to talk about and dissect with all the cultures and all the time periods. But I think it's a good snapshot of how women were viewed, how motherhood has defined women. And we're going to switch to more recent times and contemporary times. And it's really interesting because there is way more research and resources out there for the historical perspective of this and not so much that we were able to find of now, even the numbers of like how often infanticide happens. It's, and I'm forever frustrated about the uniform, how the uniform crime report states statistics of just crime in this country. Um, But I don't know. I don't know the reason for that. I was a little shocked at the lack of, of research in this area, um, you know, very small populations, very small studies in Hungary, you know, I, I could find that or something in New Zealand with a small population, but yeah, that's just not enough to go on. You yeah. Know, we so want more. we can oh, have conjecture about why, you know, is it because people don't give a shit and they're not, um, anyway, we'll get into it. We'll talk about also like the differences here in the U S as compared to other countries and probably a breakdown in how we are very quick to punish and harsh in this country and um, give little regard to psychiatric considerations. So what Scott talked about is, you know, one thing, there's also a lot of anti-female infanticide and sex-selective killings that still happen in parts of the world today. And that's not what we're going to be turning our focus to right now. Generally, we're going to look at Western countries and cultures and sort of the isolated and tragic family crimes rather than it being more of a pressing need to do this. And, you know, it's really hard to talk about this subject because, you know, I think there's a place in which we sort of categorize it as rare and shocking that makes us feel better when we talk about it. And it's easier to accept things that we sort of label with that headline. But I think what really makes us uncomfortable about this is that we think of the love between a parent and a child as so strong. And, you know, there's there's the evolutionary imperative to protect one's offspring from harm. It just feels like the ultimate bond and relationship. So when we do talk about crimes that involve parents harming their children, it just feels more shocking. But let's talk about the frequency and and see how often this happens. Now, like I said, it was really hard to find statistics just for infanticide. So a child murders by parents 
generally under the age of one. The U.S. has the highest rates of child homicide at about eight per 100,000 for wow. infants. So they that's, I don't know how they're defining infant. There was not an age range there. But infant sounds pretty close that we're honing in on what we're talking about today. It increased in the mid-1990s for whatever reason and then has been on the decline since then. But it seems overall it has declined since some of the things that you have talked about where there's systems in place, social systems in place for unwanted children, orphanages, and then foster care systems, places for these unwanted children to actually be cared for. But I found this quote, and again, this is from the the Sandra Newman article, where she says, quote, we only stopped killing our babies when we started having fewer of them. Take that for what you will, but it's... It's it's a chilling but very pragmatic perspective of it. And I think the the other thing that you put in the notes that, that jumped out for me is that this was also the time where condoms, even though they were made of, I think, sheep intestine at the time, Mm -hmm. that's when they really began to be more available to people, certainly in Britain and France. Yes. So which could be used as a form of birth control, not not 100 percent birth control. Right. So you saw numbers really go down in Europe once it was more accepted and popular to use condoms. Very interesting. So throughout more recent history, they do find that the rates of child homicide and infanticide go up when there's nationwide increase in economic stress. And that can be that can mean a million different things, right? Like it doesn't mean just, oh, there's not enough money to buy food for this child, but it could be the intense psychiatric problems that we see with individuals who are suffering in in really hard financial times. And we talked about that in the familicide episodes too, sort of the inability to be able to provide for your family and the stress and the lack of coping. Sometimes taking out and annihilating your entire family feels like the option for someone who's suicidal and homicidal. Most infanticides and child homicides, for that matter, are perpetrated by a family member and are commonly the result of intoxication, psychosis, abuse or neglect, or obviously a combination of some of those, if not all of those going on. The risk factors that we find with mothers, they are more likely to kill infants when that child is born out of wedlock, when they already have small children, and followed by an infant whom they can't support. So I think that's really interesting to look at and sort of break down a little bit and lend a little bit of explanation for why this is. So if a mother... it seems like they're looking for anything they can to justify it, right? I mean, like the illegitimacy of a particular child might be, well, it's... It wasn't born in wedlock. I mean, this so they they find an excuse, anything to grab onto to justify this. Yes, I think there's a healthy, healthy dose of excuses for this. I also think, you know, I'm looking at if these women are incredibly unsupported or dressed out, like what is the motive here? And killing a child, I mean, it, as awful as it is, it might be the way in which they see that there's there's no way out of this, what they think is a horrific situation at the time. I mean, take like a teenage girl who, you know, whatever is happening in that moment, that is intense and the, you know, they, they can't see beyond that there's a way out of it necessarily. So you mix that with maybe some 
struggles with mental health and they're not able to reach out. They're clearly unsupported or they're choosing this very finite solution to this problem and they're not able to problem solve their way out of it. So, And they may not have had great problem solving skills to begin with because of youth or inexperience. Yeah. Right. And also there's, again, we see a huge lack of sex education being present for a large portion of these cases. So, and and not necessarily that um, I didn't know I was pregnant situation, even though I think that's a huge chunk of it, but also like, what do I do now? Like how, who do I turn to for help and just well, the secrecy aspect of it and the shame. Right. And that's, that's a problem that has become increasingly significant in the U S as we have very partisan politics and very partisan quote unquote morals about sex education. Whereas it was more common in the seventies than it is now. So mm-hmm. we have parents that, you know, slam their fist down and say, you're not going to talk to my kids about sex. And then they, but then they don't pick up the responsibility at home and talk to their kids about sex. So the kids are kind of in a double bind, like, well, where do I get the information? Another thing that is just unbelievable in our country here that is just ridiculous is that we don't give our kids sex education except for abstinence only programs, which do not work. All of our stats show they do not work. And in fact, you lower, I think even Colorado was the one that provided family planning and sex education in schools and their their abortion rates went down like significantly their unplanned pregnancies in teens mm-hmm. went down the abortion rate went down so in, in, and yet did other states adopt it after those stats came out a few years ago no because it still becomes this dividing point for people yep. What? Our country's divided on things? Uh, what a concept. No way. What That's a crazy concept. talk. <laughs> so the statistical data indicates that about 50% of the perpetrators do suffer from some sort of personality disorder or are quote unquote mentally deficient. Again, that definition was was difficult to find, but I think it's because a lot of the studies were looking at it in different ways. But those with a disturbed personality show showed the personality disorders, labile lifestyles, hypothymia, which is kind of that flat affect that we've talked about previously, um, a, a lack of fluctuation in their emotion and being able to portray that on the outside and, and portray how they're actually feeling on the inside. So that's a really great thing you're pointing out there is like two ends of a, the two extremes of a an affective response or an affective presentation. So hypothymia would be on one end, the flat affect, maybe having some interpersonal interpersonal skill challenges or just really not being there, maybe like schizoid or schizotypal mm-hmm. personalities. But then on the extreme other side are labile lifestyles. So constant mood fluctuation between up and down, which might be sort of on the bipolar scale or cyclothymic scale, that kind of thing. Yeah, so the, like you're saying, the, the extremes of both those ends. Yes, yes. It was interesting that they also noted that there was this infantilism about them, like there's this childlike way about their demeanor. So most of the mothers that were perpetrators of infanticide kept the pregnancy a secret, even if they were married. So it, that kind of, you talked about like the planning of in the definition. That's 
could indicate long-term planning. If you're keeping a secret, it could be, well, let me just not think think about it and put my head in the sand and I'll figure out what to do when this baby comes out. But that kind of knocks out the not guilty by reason of insanity, right? Which means at the time this happened, this brief moment in time, you were insane. So yeah, not if you were planning. Right, right. Maternal filicide. So this, this is mothers who are killing daughters. So very specific in this, this study that I found. Those perpetrators have five major identified motives. So the first is what they call an altruistic filicide, where the mother kills her child out of love, air quotes. She believes death to be in the child's best interest. For example, a suicidal mother may not wish to leave her motherless child to face an intolerable world. So hearkening back to that quote we took from the Chinese woman in the 16th century, or a psychotic mother may believe that she's saving her child from a fate worse than death. So who does that remind you of? Well, the biggest case, and although it's not just an infant because it was so many children of very young age, is Andrea Yates. I mean, that's yeah. really one of the big cases really in recent history in the last 20 years. It's a tragic story. I get incensed every time I review the story because... They were members of a religious cult. The husband, I feel like her husband was responsible for a great deal of it because he just left this clearly mentally ill woman. And once again, let me let me emphasize clearly out of her depth with some mental health issues, crying out for help. And she was abandoned by everybody. Mm-hmm. And she ended up killing all of her children in, in a really, you know, a, just a tragic incident because she thought that they... She was so inherently evil that she was going to taint her children. And the only way to keep them from becoming sinful and tainted and possessed was for her to drown each one of them. Right. So the second major motive is an acutely psychotic filicide where a psychotic or delirious mother kills her child without any comprehensible motive. So, for example, if there's some sort of command hallucinations going on where they're ordering her to kill that would be something that is very clear and falls under that that category another one would be when fatal maltreatment filicide occurs the death is usually not the anticipated outcome and it ends up resulting from cumulative child abuse or neglect or munchausen syndrome by proxy which we've also been asked to talk about a lot, and we we will <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> um, actually, we I had kind of put one on our list that is very similar to that that we might circle back to in a couple months. And then there's also an unwanted child filicide. A mother thinks of her child as a hindrance in some way, and we've covered a lot of ways in which they they think that it could be because of the relationship that they're in, maybe the. The man in their life doesn't want a child. It could be financial reasons, just they feel ill-equipped to have that child. And then the most rare is the spouse revenge filicide occurring when a mother kills her child specifically to emotionally harm that child's father. Which is also comes from really sort of almost, um, what would I say, not avatarist, like archetypal myth in our society is the story of Medea, who is enraged that her husband 
is having an affair. So she horrifically kills their two children to take revenge on him. I mean, that's a very famous Greek play. It's been adapted into many films and, and plays and, and television stories over and over again because it is such a, a rare, a very rare and sort of gut punch that a, a parent would be able to do this. Like we've been talking about all these reasons of why these things might happen, but the one that feels like the most sort of uh, psychopathic is the revenge killing. Yes. Right? Yes. Well, I feel like we see it sometimes with these male family annihilators. So I just want to quickly give you some stats from some of these smaller studies that I found. It, interesting, and maybe it's because the rates had gone up in the mid-90s, but a lot of the research is, was pretty old. It was from like late 90s to early 2000s. So again, problematic, but we're going with the best that we have today. So there was a, a 1997 study that indicated that they estimate that 5 to 10% of sudden infant death syndrome cases were actually infanticide concealed as SIDS. And then in 1998, there was a study from the University of Texas that, and this is like no pun intended when I say this, this, this is what the stat said, but that the rate of infanticide for twins was found to be almost double the rate for singleton children. I mean, I, you think about the situations in which they're perceiving the children as a, a hindrance. A burden, yeah. Yeah. So now they're getting a double dose all at once. Right, right. And there was an interesting, a small study in New Zealand that said that when the mothers were psychotic, the children were killed suddenly without much planning, like pretty much after birth and just in a flash. Whereas depressed mothers who were not psychotic had contemplated killing their children for days to weeks prior to the crime occurring, which makes sense. It does make sense. The only thing I would want to add in there is that, you know, depression can be so debilitating. If you have major depressive disorder, we even have a further sort of delineation and definition of, of major depressive disorder, severe, you can go mild, moderate, severe. So we feel classified as severe with or without psychotic features. And I would say that probably in the in the example we said earlier of Andrea Yates, she had been struggling with these command auditory hallucinations that she was evil and that she was going to have to pay in the afterlife and she was going to hell. So she did struggle with and probably plan this as opposed to criminal perspective has some great interviews with perpetrators of infanticide Right. that I'm kind of amazed they were even able to get her on, but that's another episode of a podcast I highly, highly recommend is Chris's interviews with an incarcerated uh, female perpetrator of infanticide. So I wanted to, not that we need to get into the gory details, but I was very curious about the means, the way in which they go about perpetrating these crimes. And it was difficult to find, but what I saw accounts of were drownings, burying of the children, or it, it would say like death after essentially being born into a toilet. So where the mom, you know, goes there, maybe not knowing where to go, or if she's just having stomach pains, not knowing she's pregnant. And, but it didn't say, you know, whether it was head trauma or drowning or something like mm. that. But I thought it was really interesting because it still sort of echoes even the ways in which we saw it throughout history that you explained. And one of those is definitely exposure. 
Again, we're seeing this exposure, which the the research that's been done in this area was talking about how they coined it as a fantasy, where the the mother's able to sort of fantasize that their child might be saved and adopted, but it's also this buffer of, well, I didn't lay hands on and murder my child. I just left it up to the what ifs. My child died because I couldn't take care of it. Yes. Yeah. Mental gymnastics, more, as we like to say. Way more abstract. Yeah. yeah. And that investigations, and I think we hear about this all the time in the media, not that that means that's the most common or prevalent, but whenever we hear about these cases, it's a child found in a dumpster or a child, right? So the ways in which investigations into infanticide are kicked off are when a baby is found through being left out into the elements or when a woman seeks medical attention after severe problems after delivery, like she's hemorrhaging, and then that will kick off an investigation because ER staff starts asking questions. Right. Because they know what that looks like, clearly. Yeah, it's well, like you yeah. can't really lie that you've, like, it's clear from the anatomy what's going on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. The infanticide rates in the U.S. are higher than other countries. And here, the women are charged with just straight up homicide and often imprisoned for life. In contrast, in the UK, Australia, Canada, and 21 other European countries, they have specific infanticide laws for women who kill a child under the age of one based on factors like the biological vulnerability of childbirth. Women who are found to be mentally ill will then receive psychiatric hospitalization instead of punishment. So we're seeing it change and it has changed in other parts of the world. Not here yet. Not yet. Um, so I just wanted to go through quickly this case example that was beautifully written up and told from the perspective of the defense expert who is a perinatal psychiatrist. And it's a fascinating read that, of course, we will link. This is, gosh, I want to give you the year, but it, uh, I want to say 90s. I don't have it in front of me. But Lisette Bamgenia in from New York. So she was a 32-year-old Black woman. She was a school teacher in Brooklyn. And she was so renowned as a wonderful person, mother, teacher, that the school children's parents actually banded together to pay for her defense. She was arrested and tried for murdering her six-month-old and her three-year-old. So just think about the attestment of this woman's character. If she murders her children and then the parents of the children that she taught are willing to rally around her and pay for her defense. Did you find the year for me? Yeah, I just found it was 2016 was when the oh. court date happened. But it was uh, there are other things there, too, is that it was once again uh, drowning. Right. But she had also poisoned her kids, Trevor Noel and Violet. Yeah. So this perinatal psychiatrist in doing her her evaluation found that every June that Lisette had suffered manic episodes She was never diagnosed. Her family had basically written her off as like the free spirit of the family. But she was doing things like uh, there was a time where uh, a friend was in Paris and they were communicating back and forth. And the friend's like, oh, I wish you were here. And that night she got on a plane and flew to Paris, like very manic, just impulsive. yeah, Yeah, this psychiatrist lays out really the history of impulsivity and cycles between this mania and then found that she also had profound postpartum depression after each of her children. She also found historically that her paternal grandmother had a postpartum psychosis 
where or incident where she threw her baby against the wall and was initially exercised by a Catholic priest after this incident and then was later hospitalized. They were from French Guiana. So, you know, these are some of the the ways in which they're handling it out there. And then an aunt also suffer, suffered postpartum psychosis and was hospitalized until she died. And if that information had been sort of freely shared within the family, that there's things that you can do to prevent it. Or you can say like, hey, there's a tendency for postpartum depression to be really severe. Let's make sure mm-hmm. you have all the support and help you need. This is also particularly chilling going back to the Greek myth of Medea that I gave because this supposedly was the reason that she killed her children as she found out the father of her children, who, what is his name? Um, he was a former NYPD cop named Trevor Knoll. She was just in a deadly rage against him because he fathered another child with a woman living in Spain. So there were, it was a bench trial. There, there wasn't a jury trial. And this psychiatrist presented the data that demonstrated definitely impaired cognition in, during the postpartum psychosis when this crime occurred. And it was really interesting because she goes on to talk about how the odds were against this woman because of U.S. failings in both the criminal law and the field of psychiatry. And she kind of beautifully talks about the forensic psychologist who was on the prosecution side. He doesn't know anything about prenatal psychosis specifically. Right. Cause he's a guy and didn't or, like decide right. to dive into it. Right. Yeah. And here she's, she says, I, I don't do, I'm not a forensic psychiatrist. Like I don't do this expert testimony stuff all the time, but I felt confident what I could do because I know what I know. Right. And so the judge ends up opining that Lisette did not fulfill criteria for insanity. And she's found not guilty of murder in the first or second degree, but convicted of manslaughter by reason of extreme emotional disturbance. And she ends up getting eight years, which at the end of this essay, if you will, the psychiatrist says, you know, I I was actually really happy with what the court's took into consideration or the judge because the judge really said this was one of the hardest sentencing decisions I've ever had to make because I'm strongly considering what was going on for this woman at the time, yet I don't feel like it fully meets the criteria. And they're also looking at who she was before. You know, when an entire community comes out, that says a lot. That tells you a lot about somebody. You know, there were people... (laughs) You know, when, when people come out in full support after something that is clear that this woman committed this crime, but she still gets the support and people understand, I think that's really significant. I do think you picked up on something really fascinating, too, in the research, because I didn't find it when I was reading about this case, is that she was on a regular cycle, even, and her mm-hmm. her bipolar manias generally happened, was it in, in spring or summer? summer? Okay, so summer, which is very interesting that the cycle was so strong, like ramping right. up and that they would get worse at that time of year. And the, the forensic psychologist for the prosecution just said, oh, she just has like seasonal affective disorder, basically. Like we can't, because summertime is when she acts up and. <laughs> it, I mean, not, not uh, trying to be funny, but that sounds to me a lot like an ignorant guy talking about a women's, women's menstrual cycles. Right. You're uh, just not, yeah. 
not She's, having any concept of the the spectrum of challenge it is for women, the effect that it can have. It might not bother anybody for years, but then it can change and it can be really bad. And here are guys on the other side just going, just, just take cramps. something, just take a pill. Uh, it's just, you know. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks That's for that. like also, do you know about like the, the female astronaut? Was it Sally Yates or something? And they were asking. Sally Ride? Sally Ryan. They, they not Andrea asked, Yates. Oh, not Andrea Yates. I apologize, Miss Ryan. That they were asking if a hundred tampons was enough for her to take into space for like you know just like a week or so. Like, oh my god! That's how dumb they were. I mean, like, and those are people high up in NASA. So <laughs> come on. We can get you on the moon, but we go, oh, dear God, don't talk to us about periods. <laughs> don't talk to us about your lady parts. The, the mystery that is the lady parts. Yes. So do you want to talk about NGI? I do. And I wanted here? to I want to link it um, also to a show that was very popular as well. It has, was on for uh, a number of seasons, a show called Desperate Housewives. And it was really Ooh, popular because it was like an evening. Yeah. It was like an evening sort of dramatic, melodramatic comedic dramedy, I guess is what you would call mm-hmm. it. And it was uh, created by Mark Cherry. Mark Cherry had had a number of successes as a writer producer. And then just will it really went through a bad period, like where he literally had to move back in with his mom and he could <laughs> not really get a project going. And he was sitting with her tying this all together, which I did not plan for this to tie together. They were watching the Andrea Yates trials. No, yeah. No, I, I shit you not. So he turns to his mom and he's just like completely gobsmacked. And he says, how, how could a woman do that to her children? And he said, oh, right, what is the quote is? I turned to her and I said, gosh, can you imagine a woman being so desperate that she would hurt her own children? And he said his mother took a drag of her cigarette, <laughs> let, let it exhale and turned to him and said, I've been there. Wow. And it led to this really in-depth discussion for this, you know, gay writer who had been successful, had some successes, was now sort of not doing so well. This really in-depth conversation with his mom about what that means to oh, a woman to be so overwhelmed. So it 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 spun off a whole show about women in this fictional American town in a fictional American state. And um you know, where everything on the surface looks perfect, but everything underneath is just really a mess. And Desperate Housewives, it had a really great narrative twist. So the show follows this group of women, but all throughout the show, the opening and closing is narrated by their mutual friend who commits suicide in the first episode. Yeah. So you're not really sure. It's not like, is it a ghost or is it just sort of a narrative, comp, you know, commentary like a Greek chorus? But it's it's framed about how all of them with these seemingly perfect lives, they all have domestic struggles in their family life. They hold dark secrets. There are crimes, mysteries, and some really, really bad decision-making behind the doors of these, you know, this perfect suburban neighborhood. Wisteria Lane. Wisteria Lane, yes. Which is beautiful. It's at Universal Studios. Yeah, it's there (laughs) still. So I love how that ties all of that together. I want to go back historically. I know we've referred to this before, but there was uh, in the 1840s uh, a ruling that came out in 
Scotland, I think, or it was in, in Great Britain at that Great time. Britain. Great Britain. A criminal case where there was a defense of insanity. It's called the Monoton Rule. And it was basically saying, okay, everybody is presumed to be sane. And that in order to establish a defense on the ground of insanity, you have to prove that at the time of the committing of the crime, the person accused was laboring under such a defective reason from, quote, unquote, disease of the mind as to not know the nature and quality of the act that he or she was doing, or if he did know it, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. And that was a, an enormous legal precedent, which was a big shift from uh, the Code of Hammurabi, which was basically in a lot of our, you know, sort of uh, Judeo-Christian backgrounds of an eye for an eye. Right. This was like, wait, let's take a second. Let's let's step back and look like, did this person know what they were doing and did they have the intent? So um, that really held sway for a long time. I won't necessarily go into that case, but it really laid the groundwork as a standard test for criminal liability in relation to uh, mental disorders or what I would say is mentally disordered defendants in common law jurisdictions. But it's continued to evolve with minor adjustments. So, you know, you can make a defense for not guilty by reason of insanity, but it has come a long way in our modern world where we really, especially in the state of California, good luck getting yeah. that. I mean, we will we will do things for minor crime, but for, for you know, major felonies. Our, our state hospital, I mean, our state prisons are basically you know, all have yards that are mental health wards. So they have no problem putting them right into that mental health ward while oh, they serve their, yes. their uh, term. So most U.S. states have it with the exception of Idaho, Kansas, Montana, Utah, and Vermont. But um, not all of those jurisdictions still use the McNaughton rules. And states that don't allow the insanity defense will still allow defendants to demonstrate that they're not capable of forming an intent to commit a crime as a result of a mental illness. So then there's also this thing called competency where you can't even expect, you can't legally expect a defendant to come to court if they can't understand the proceedings. So that might result in them staying in jail or incarcerated even or at state hospital here in California in order to this term, quote unquote, restore competency. So you medicate and you educate the, the individual to the extent so that they can understand the charges against them so that, that they can under, so understand what's happening to them. Yeah. Right. So competency is about like in the moment when they go to trial, when we talk about not guilty by reason of insanity, that's at the time of the crime. Right. And so, and then also I think they would also parse out whether or not it was true mental illness or if it was uh, mental illness brought on by substance intoxication, like sure. really hardcore use of, of methamphetamine, which really will, or, or LSD or PCP, which are sort of the heavy hitters as far as what what can alter your mental state to the point of psychosis. Yeah, so, it's a really interesting area. Culpability, are you psychotic because it's not your fault and you're mentally ill? Or are you psychotic because you're under the influence of this thing you put in your body? Yeah, and being under the influence of a substance really lessens the, the chance that you're going to get off on that defense of any yeah. type. People so the, don't have too much sympathy for that. They really don't. Yeah. Um, so the two common examples that are used is a defendant cuts a woman's throat under the delusion that he is cutting a loaf of bread. Oy. Right. So doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't understand right. the context of it, or the defendant chops off a sleeping man's head because she has the deluded idea that it would be really fun to see the man looking for it when he wakes up. 
Oh, okay. All these beheading examples. Jeez. Both of those examples are good for showing misperception in the context of really severe mental illness. So um, how do you assess for diminished responsibility or diminished uh, capacity? And a psych evaluation. So, yeah, that's where people like us, forensic psychologists, I I work with a couple of psychologists and psychiatrists. This is all they do. Mm -hmm. Like they just go through these evaluations all day, looking through as many records as they can. And but the most important thing is, is insanity that is being evaluated for it? Was it at the time that the defendant committed the offense? So they have to understand the nature and the quality of their acts. They have to distinguish the difference between right and wrong. And were they capable of controlling their behavior at the time? And that's that's a big one that comes up. Yeah, volition. Right. And then doing these evaluations, they also want to look. We have a thing here that's really difficult to navigate in mental health court in California. It's called the Sanchez rule, and it has nothing to do or California versus Sanchez. And it doesn't have anything to do with mental illness. It's all about hearsay. And it's hugely problematic. So it's like, well, no, this person who is on the witness stand is saying that they heard so-and-so talking about the defendant. Well, that's hearsay evidence, and we're not going to allow it. It makes it really difficult for us when I go on the stand, and I've had to do this several times, where I'm going in there, and as a forensic psychologist, I'm looking at 15 years of records, and I'm looking at this psychiatrist evaluation from 10 years ago, and I'm looking at this police report, and every single time the defense will get up and go, well, that's that's hearsay. And then I have to say, I, you may be calling it hearsay, but would you do the same thing if this person had diabetes? And I'm reading from medical report. Yeah, well, that, it's collateral the, data. It's right. not that this police officer that took this report is whispering in your ear about what right. happened. It's a document. It's data. Right. And we're trying to, you know, create this profile for an, an evaluation. And, you know, usually the the judge will, will give some flexibility with that. But that's, I mean, I... The number of times, yeah, three times, like the hand shoots in the air, like Sanchez. (laughs) So, um, like we said, you review medical records, mental health records, school records, police reports, collateral families, friends, families, coworkers, eyewitnesses. And then, of course, always one of the first things you want to do is evaluate for malingering. And malingering is is, um, evaluating whether or not the defendant is attempting to present as incapacitated or present as mentally ill so that they can get the secondary gain of not getting sentenced for their crime or or secondary gain of getting a lesser charge, you know, so right. trying to present. And there's the, the great thing is that there's really good science behind adjusting or evaluating for malingering. I mean, we have mm-hmm. scales for it. I also think that it's an art. And, you know, I a couple of the really, really experienced psychiatrists that I've worked with who I think like are verging on superpowers because they work in psych hospitals all day long and they can smell malingering from a mile away. It's fascinating. There's but you would also I used I did some assessments in practice. What are they using now? What is there a is so a rubric? There, was, there was one really long assessment. I can't remember what it was, but Funny, because I just brought this story up on a text thread recently that you'll remember this if you read it. But this was when I was a brand new practicum student and I was doing a malingering test on this parolee. And 
you had to have him do a couple of different tasks. And there was one that he was just like, I don't know, like, I can't do this one. And I was like, come on, just take a stab at it. And it turned out he had been in prison for stabbing his girlfriend to death. Oh my gosh. It was one of those moments where you just want to, you know, Homer Simpson backing into the bushes. (laughs) Did he, did he react? Oh no, there was like nothing. It was like nothing for him. It was all inside of me. And then there was one shoot. I can't remember the name of it either, but basically it's, uh, it's a really quick, like flip book test. And I forget what you're asking them to do. It's like, you're asking them to name something in the drawing real quick. Oh, like something that's missing in a very simple drawing, like a picture of a guy with, there's like no fingers on his hand, like something everyone will get. And when you're, you tell them I'm basically testing for malingering um, or do you tell them on that one? I can't remember. There's I don't like think a trick you do. To it. That's, that's, that's a more, adva- yeah, that's a more, you're doing a more advanced one of the, the only, the, like, I only know like the super basic one, but you finish and I'll tell them. But this one, they usually score super low, but they say even someone with an IQ of like 60 will get 50% or above correct. Right. And the people who are malingering just bomb it because they're like, oh, like, I don't know what's missing from this picture. And they, you know, play stupid because they want to get a, they think they're, you're testing them psychologically and they want to get a quote unquote low score. Right. So they fake this low score and you're like, you know, just about everybody could get at least a 50% on this. Well, so the the version that I've done of that has is questions like, it's either a picture of like why, what a violin and a guitar have in common, common. that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And somebody will answer. I mean, even a person with like developmental disability will go, they're both instruments, you yeah. know, like, are you, are you, it's, you think I'm stupid or something? I mean, I've had, right. I've had, I've had people look at me like, why are you asking me what a is this dumb a trick question, question? <laughs> where the person who wants to malinger is like, uh, they're both animals. One has horns. It's like, no, they're inanimate <laughs> exactly. objects. Sir. Exactly. Those are so, always fun now, to give. The other thing, and not to to minimize this in any case where you're evaluating for competency, is there needs to be neuropsych testing as well to rule out whether or not there's like history of uh, trauma, traumatic brain injury, thyroid problems, or any Just kind organic of organic brain damage. In, exactly, organic brain damage that that could have contributed to this. So, what happens to defendants who are not? Let, let's just say. Best case scenario in a horrific crime, what happens? And this person is found to be not guilty by reason of insanity. So I'm going to speak from the point of view of California. So this is actually pretty rare. But if someone is found not guilty by reason of insanity, there's a myth about like they're just suddenly released and they go home. And that's not it at all. It means that they go, at least in California, the defendant goes to the Department of State Hospitals while they are still sentenced to the maximum term for their crime. However, and this is the thing that people don't realize, and even sometimes the defendants don't realize, is that say you were like Hannibal Lecter level of intelligence, and you're able to convince, you're able to malinger so well that you get past the two psychologists and the psychiatrists that were doing the evaluations. You fool them, but your crime was so heinous, like a sexually violent predator or a multiple murder. So you go and you do your 25 years at Patton State Hospital or um, Atascadero. When that's done, they can still keep you. Yep. 
they can absolutely still keep you if they think, well, regardless of this person's mental health issues, we still feel like they're a danger to society. Then, no, we're not getting we're not releasing you, which is very different from how the criminal system works. Oh, yeah. Right? Just go do your prison time. Just go do your prison time and you're going to have a better chance of getting out. Like that's I always found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So and even if they were, we have a we also. So let's just say that somebody is able to get out. We have a really very well functioning um, program called CONRAP, and that is the Forensic Conditional Release Program. And it's a statewide system of community outpatient treatment programs. Um, We have one hospital here that, I mean, every time the director gives her forensic CEU, I always sign up for it and I learn something new every time. It's so good. Um, Dr. Nicole. And um, so they, they have criteria too of like, what you might meet, meet, how could you meet criteria? You've been in state hospital for all these years. So you have no physical aggression except for self-defense because those kind of issues can mm-hmm. happen in state hospital N- or verbal threats for uh, nine to 12 months. Um, no major rule violations. You take medications prescribed. You are compliant with treatment, which means going to your one-to-ones, going to your groups, no alcohol or drug use. So really you're just showing that your mental illness can be managed in a contained hospital setting and that you have motivation and volition to remain compliant with treatment. And we have had some that are so criminally and sexually deviant that, that people have to get released by the state. Like this is a very rare occurrence and I've only seen it happen once. Um, Although I know it's, I've heard of it happening more. But the one case I was involved in was a very, very violent predator with no remorse, no insight. I mean, this was a really scary dude. But because of a glitch in the system, he had timed out from his state charges and he kept filing paperwork against the hospital system to be released. And the knowledge was, is like, look, the guy is going to reoffend. Yep. There's no way that this person can't reoffend. So we're going to have to, but we have to follow the law and wait for him to offend. But we're going to make sure that he's monitored 24 hours a day. So literally this guy was put in an apartment with one-to-one handlers for indeterminate length of time. Can you imagine how much that costs us? It costs the state so much money. Now, ultimately what happened is he didn't even make it six months. You know, and and because even with the, a handler, even with a handler one on one, because you can't stop them from just like running down the street. The handler right. is not law. The handler is former law enforcement, but they're not like right. They're but they have limitations as to what they can use as far as rule of force or um, use of force. So there's a lot of criteria that has to be met um, for that to actually happen. There's a lot of certainly a lot of criteria that has to be met for even a person to be considered to be not right. guilty by reason of insanity, but. Certainly with the cases that we've talked about today, especially in the context context of infanticide and women in really difficult situations, it can happen. Yep. Yep. Wow. Great episode, Dr. That was Scott. Really <laughs> dark, but but great. Like once again, kind of doing a dive and like finding that quote from 400 years ago of a woman right. and, and what her struggle was with dealing with this. Like, that's really, I think that's going to sit with me for a while. Yeah, I think so too. These, it's a lot of bigger issues here. 
societal issues that are just, we're going to ponder on these for a bit. But I, I'm really excited to look into a few more LA-centric crimes that are from this time period. And I did want to focus on one that was Cecil Hotel related, but not the ones that everyone kind of talks about all yeah. of the time. So you guys will have to stay tuned to see which one we cover in a couple of weeks. Yes. And thanks, everybody, for continuing to reach out to us just to say hi, uh, leaving us reviews. We've gotten some just absolutely wonderful reviews in the last couple of weeks that are just I'm just so humbled by it. Like I'm I'm honored and humbled at the same time by the enthusiasm and support that our listeners have. And we even get emails on the, on our website. And one is from that we got recently that just bowled me over is a forensic psychology student who gave, you know, recommended it to her professor and her professor really likes it. I'm, and I'm just, I'm bowled over that we're, you know, getting our foot in the door with so many people. So thank you for being our patrons and listening to us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, folks, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Thank Bye, you. Folks. Bye-bye. We sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network, and each episode is hosted, produced, and edited by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our music, entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir, is composed and performed by the amazing Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution license. Check out his YouTube channel at handle 1HMNC. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at www.la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Please hit subscribe so you never miss a new episode. Lastly, we'd be honored if you join our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash LA Not So Podcast. Until next time, folks. <laughs>